0: It is another blessed day of being among the elect and the body of Christ. It is a privilege to meet here and be up here in front of you today to deliver the Word of God. Before I dive in, permit me a moment to explain my heart regarding the message today. I feel a little like Jude when he wrote in Jude 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Indeed, I spent time in prayer about what God would have me preach on. I tried to come up with some encouraging message about the joys of salvation and spiritual maturity, but the more I tried to write it down, the more I felt God laying something a little different on my heart. I continued to pray and seek wisdom, and eventually I settled on the passage I am preaching today. As I began to write, I realized that God had laid something on my heart that was not only an exhortation to contend for the faith and stand for the truth, but that I also had the opportunity to bring encouragement to you as fellow believers in Christ. This message was fine-tuned all the way up through yesterday afternoon. As I prayed and sought some advice, adjustments were made, and today I stand before you ready to deliver what the Lord has laid on my heart. I trust that it will not be my words and thoughts you'll hear, but that the Lord would guide me and speak through me with what I have to say to you. For you, the body, my hope is that you will be edified and that the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified with the end result. So with that, let's begin. If you have them with you, open your Bibles, if you would please, to 1 John chapter 1, and we'll be going from verse 5 all the way down through chapter 2, verse 2. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I want to start by saying today that the basis for this message is this, God's word is truth. The truth of scripture is that we are all sinners and Christ's blood cleanses us from sin, reconciling us to him. Now let me give you some background as to why the Apostle John is writing. This epistle, or letter, is the first of three letters he wrote addressing various issues and errors invading the church at the time. This particular letter was written to define truth and address certain heresies that were creeping into the church by restating effectively the fundamentals of the faith. John was combating the error spread by three groups in particular. Namely, the Gnostics, who believed that hidden, higher knowledge was the only way to know and have fellowship with God. They also believed spirit was good and matter was evil. The Docetists, who believed Christ was not actually a man in a natural, human body, but had a spirit or a phantom-type body. And the Serpentians who believed Jesus was an ordinary man who received the Holy Spirit at his baptism as a divine power and held it until he was to be crucified when the Holy Spirit left him. All three heretical groups were infiltrating the church with their teachings and attacking various biblical doctrines such as the deity of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, the atonement, and others. The Gnostics and their belief of hidden higher knowledge as the only way to know and fellowship with God seem to be more of the focus here in this letter as their views were steadily growing in popularity around this time. So, the Apostle John writing to fellow believers combats these errors by writing, under divine influence, the Epistle of First John. It is believed John wrote this letter around 90 to 95 AD, when John was believed to have settled in Ephesus, returning from his exile to the Isle of Patmos to live out the remainder of his life. The Apostle John is very black and white in his language. He deals in absolutes. He leaves no room for misinterpretation or subtle manipulation of his words. Writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle emphatically states and defines the truth throughout his letter, directly addressing the areas under attack. In light of this, I want to give you two points today and a conclusion. I've entitled this message, Anchored to Truth, anchored Anchored in Christ, as a reflection and summation of what is being taught in this passage. So the first part I want to make is to state clearly, God says we are all sinners. Verses 5-7, through this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 5 says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. When you define sin and holiness, you start with the absolute standard for holiness, God himself. God is perfect. God is holy. God cannot sin and does not sin. Everything he does, he does in accordance with his perfect will, whether we can see that or not. God is not bound by our thinking, our reasoning, by our time frames, our calendars, or anything like that. He is the source of light. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, and ever-present, among many other qualities. He personifies light, which is holiness. By contrast, we are sinners. We live with a sinful nature. We are imperfect, stained, and unable to save or help ourselves in any way. We are bound by finite thinking and sinful, selfish desires. We cannot meet the standards God has set on our own merit. We are not good. We personify darkness, which is sin you'll hear many christians and non-christians alike state they believe we are they are essentially a good person but the apostle paul states emphatically in romans 3:10 through 12 as it is written none is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks for god all have turned aside together they have become worthless no one does good not even one and then throughout the chapter he goes into great detail explaining all men deserve the wrath and judgment of god he emphasizes that in, later in chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Also writing under divine inspiration, Paul pens the unequivocal statement that God tells us we are sinners and we deserve his wrath and judgment. He leaves no doubt that there is no inherent good in any of us and that apart from Christ, we are hopelessly lost, dead in our trespasses and sin. Church family, this is essential. God calls us to be ambassadors for Christ, sharing the good news of the gospel with everyone. But nowadays it has become increasingly more popular to dumb it down. We don't want to offend anyone, so we water down the truth to make it more palatable for sinners. But the Bible knows nothing of that sort of evangelism. It knows nothing of a watered-down, all love, no wrath, take you as you are, fluffy gospel. We deserve judgment. We deserve to spend eternity apart from God in hell. But then... The gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ, shows there is a way to be saved. Quite possibly the most famous <coughs> oft quoted verse in the Bible comes again from the Apostle John through his Gospel of John in chapter 3, verse 16. The Lord Jesus himself, himself, speaking with Nicodemus, tells him, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That should make us rejoice In eternity past, God created a plan of salvation where he sent his one and only son to die in our place to pay a debt we had no way of paying, rising from the dead, conquering sin and death, and then returning to sit at the right hand of the Father. Not only that, Christ lived on earth as an example to us. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, together create a harmonious picture of the life of Christ. They give the account of his life, ministry, death, resurrection, and post-resurrection appearances before culminating with the ascension after promising the Holy Spirit, the great comforter, and giving us the great commission. We are saved by the blood of Christ. We can believe what is written on the pages of the Bible because it is God's word given to us. The Bible is God's inspired word. It is inerrant and infallible. Inerrant, which means literally without error in its original copies. And infallible, which means unable to mislead or fail in accomplishing its divine intended purpose. The Bible in its original autographs is the inspired word of God, directly from God, as written by the Holy Spirit through human authors. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, All scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If the Bible is God's inspired, infallible, and errant word to us, then that means it is true. And John seventeen seventeen states it most plainly, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. If it is truth from God, we can trust it wholeheartedly. We can look to it for wisdom and guidance. We study it. We apply it. We meditate on it and store it in our hearts that we might not sin against God, Psalm 119.11. So when the Bible, as God's word, tells us that we are sinners, then it is true. It cannot be denied. Further, even as Christians, this side of heaven, we still live with a sin nature. We still live, we still sin, and we must confess that sin to God. One of the marks of a true believer is a consistent, habitual recognition and confession of sin. Verse 6 of 1 John 1 says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If you don't recognize that you war against sin every day, that this side of heaven, you are not perfect and you will fall short, you will sin, then you do not have a grasp on true saving faith. You cannot think you're basically a good person and then live a life contradicting the word of God. You cannot have a foot in the church and a foot in the world. You cannot mix holy with unholy. You're either saved or you aren't. Further, your supposed good works do not make you a good person. Occasional church attendance doesn't mitigate the need for saving faith. Putting money in the collection at times doesn't mean you're all right in God's book. One has to begin to be drawn by God himself, recognize that he or she is a sinner, utterly lost with no hope in themselves to be saved. Then... Confess and repent your sins, surrendering your life to Christ as Lord and Savior, recognizing that He alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through Him. You can only be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. What a wonderful truth. God says we are all sinners, beloved, but He also provides a way of salvation. Jesus saves. We as Christians can see what is happening in the world today, how sin and evil pervade every facet of our society, and how the world is bowing under the weight of sin. We can see the rise of the LGBTQ movement, the ability to abort human life at will, the forcing of an eight-year-old boy into a horrific chemical gender transition, the attack on Christian liberty of governments who want to close down church, and the pervasive heresy and false teaching that invades the church on every level. And through it all, we can see that God is right and that Scripture reveals that truth to us. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, I fully believe that one of the greatest acts of love one human can perform for another in the society that we live in today, which is fast sliding into the fires of judgment, is to share with them the full, unmitigated, unparalleled, and complete truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Being nice to them isn't enough. Just living quietly isn't enough. Christ commanded his disciples, all of us, in Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen and 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Sinners need to hear the gospel. The unbelieving world needs to hear the truth of Jesus Christ. He is the only salvation from the death grips of sin. Which leads me to my second point. The Bible says the shed blood of Jesus Christ is the remedy for our sin. In keeping with our theme so far, the Bible is the truth, the active living word of God. It tells us that salvation is the only true way we can have fellowship with God. The Gnostics believe that you had to attain some secret higher knowledge to have fellowship with God. But the Apostle John spoke emphatically against this in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. John tells his readers here that you cannot say you have no sin and have fellowship with God. Secret higher knowledge is not how you attain fellowship with God. Only by confessing our sins, recognizing that he is Lord and Savior, and that he shed his blood on our behalf. That is how we are saved and brought into communion with the holy, living God. Why is battling errors so important? Why is it so critical that we face and condemn error, lies, and heresy head-on, especially when it penetrates the church itself? You only need to look at the state of the church today to see why. There was a time when the Bible and Christianity were viewed in a higher regard. That doesn't mean that it was all good and there were never any attacks against God's scripture in the church. But we have seen a decay of society in recent decades like none other in history. The invasion of the church by liberal thought, the entire homosexual movement, social justice and its theories, the catering to other religions, the postmodernism of society and a plethora of other ideologies and views has almost completely sapped the church of its role as salt and light in the world. Churches everywhere in recent years and decades have caved to the secularism on a range of viewpoints that have left it crippled and near ineffective. Men lost the stomach to fight for the church, shepherd the flock, and guard the pulpit, and we have now seen a new normal in churches where the pulpit is usurped by weak, anti-biblical men and women who preach another gospel. The flock is infiltrated by wolves who prey on their sicknesses, and ignorance for money and material gain, and where society has completely turned the church on its head, demonizing men who stand for truth and labeling them as intolerant bigots, misogynists, and racists. Society has taken the God ordained complementary roles of men and women and sacrificed them on the altar of equality. It has taken biblical doctrine inherent in Scripture and explained through the Reformation and sacrificed them on the altars of social justice and systematic racism. It has taken the truth as a whole and sacrificed it on the altar of postmodernism. The world argues against the church, against the Bible, and against God Himself. Churches are no longer being run as the body of Christ. Instead, We are looking for numerical growth with marketing strategies, CEOs and boards, and a broad spectrum of supposed ministries to attract the unchurched. Godly, biblical, doctrinally sound music is replaced by songs with truth, repetitive and hypnotic rhythms to let your guard down, and secular songs designed to spice up the service in the name of entertainment. We are selling health, wealth, and prosperity and happiness as the result of supposed true faith, telling those who will listen that this is what God really wants for you. When it doesn't come to pass, these same poor souls get told that you don't have enough faith or you don't give enough money, and it's because of you that God didn't provide what I told you he would. As an example, I had a former co-worker at the school where I'm employed who was a young, vibrant guy, always happy, always smiling, never had a bad day at first. He found out in the staff room one day that I have chronic neck and shoulder pain. This particular day I had been in a lot more pain than usual, so he came to me in front of a group of my co-workers and asked if he could pray for me. Being as our school has several who claim to be Christians working there, it wasn't an uncommon sight, so I said, sure, I would appreciate that. He proceeded to put his hands on my neck and shoulder and prayed, In Jesus' name, I command immediate healing for Tim and relief from this affliction. I command that his muscles and bones be made completely whole again. A bit shocked, but I didn't say anything at first as he finished his prayer and stepped back with his big grin on his face, and he asked me, how do you feel? A bit of pressure. I looked around the group standing with me, some of whom did not claim to be Christians, and then back at him, and I said, I feel the same, but thank you. His face turned from bright expectation to bewilderment and uncertainty, and he asked me, well, can I pray for you again? Normally, I would have politely declined and thanked him for his prayer, but I didn't. I just nodded and said, okay. He assumed the position again, repeated the same prayer, and again he stepped back with his expectant smile and asked me how I felt. At this point, what do you say? I smiled and shook my head and said, thank you, but I still feel the same. You could have knocked him over with a feather. He had no idea how to respond except to say to me in front of everyone, we need to make sure that your faith matches the healing. What do you say to something like that? Being that he was someone I worked with and I felt he genuinely wanted to help, I simply thanked him again and said that sometimes God lets us go through things to refine us and strengthen our faith. And with that, I left and went about my day. Later last year, he left and he went to California to be with the girl he was going to marry, who, as he told me, was also part of the same church he was. He kept in touch with several people I worked with, and around November last year, the girl he was with was diagnosed with terminal cancer. I tried to reach out to him, but I didn't hear back. He later returned home to Queensland, and I caught up with him when he came on campus for a visit. After talking with him and asking him how he was, uh, how she was doing, and getting the full story from him, he told me he wasn't sure if the Christian thing was for him or not. That was the last I ever heard from him. So what happened? You could argue several different points here, but from what I know of him and his life, he had been swept up in an emotional type of Christianity and had never really been grounded in biblical truth. While I don't pretend to read hearts as only God can do that, the evidence suggests that this young guy, sadly, was likely not a true convert. He likely epitomized the seeds that fell on the rocky soil in Jesus' parable of the sower in Matthew 13:5 and 6. Which reads, other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. The sad reality is the truth of the gospel, the truth that Christ shed his blood and died for, is being warped, tainted, and in many cases completely removed from the church as a whole. Churches no longer uphold the truths of the faith. They now reflect the world and what it wants to see. A so-called pastor of a particular megachurch in the U.S. had a full-sized basketball court built in his sanctuary as he preached an entire series based not out of the Bible, but on the NCAA basketball tournament held in March every year in the States. He gave no examples from scripture, but plenty of basketball illustrations peppered his talks each Sunday as the numbers of unconverted people filled his church building. This is just one of countless examples of a type of Christianity that does not reflect true saving faith. They are replete with errors and heresy that goes against everything the Bible teaches. This is not the type of Christianity that Jude exhorted his readers to contend for or that Paul urged Timothy to guard in 1 Timothy 6. Sadly, we are living in an age where truth is no longer treasured, prayer is no longer practiced, and scripture is no longer sufficient. Instead, we have traded the truth of God for a lie, as Romans one twenty five says, and have begun worshiping ourselves over our Creator. Christ shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. What a glorious reality this is. We had no hand in this. Christ redeemed us and called us to himself through his completed work on the cross. That is reason enough to be joyful through every circumstance. That should make your heart glad and should lead you into worshiping our great God with rejoicing. That is also the truth that every Christian should reflect on when trials come our way. When times become difficult, James tells us in James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. No one loves hard times. There should be no perverse pleasure in pain and suffering. But with the reality that we are sinners saved by the grace of God through his Son, in those hard times we should be able to come before the Lord, look heavenward, and echo James' words, count it all joy. Satan will bring attacks in various different areas of our lives to undermine God and bring doubt. Dr. John MacArthur says of Satan's attacks, Satan attacks us in several different ways. He attacks God's credibility. He attacks the Christian personally, making it hard to live the Christian life. He confuses us with false doctrine. He does his best to hinder our service. Satan does all he can to cause division in the body. He urges us to trust our own resources instead of Christ. He causes us to be hypocritical. He works to make us look worldly. And he works to cause us to act immorally in disobedience with God's word. You can guarantee that when trials come our way to refine us and prove us, to expose things in us we need to repent of, and to show again God's true faithfulness to us, Satan is behind the scenes working every which way he can to hinder us and cause us to turn away from God. All the more reason for us to recognize the power of our Savior and to turn to him in every situation with love and joy, resting in his strength and grace to sustain us. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. The Lord gets his best soldiers out of the highlands of affliction. Suffering and trials are God's way of refining us and making us stronger in the faith. It may come at a cost, and it usually does, physically, mentally, and emotionally, even spiritually to a point. But God is faithful, and while he does not promise a life of health, wealth, and prosperity, as some may want you to believe, he does promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. He does promise to supply our needs, but he warns us to be on guard, not just for ourselves, but for the sake of the truth. 1 Peter 5.8, be be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If you let your guard down, you can be sure an attack will come your way. Be diligent in your study of the word, be consistent in your prayer life, and be faithful to the one who saved you, growing in your relationship with him. In conclusion, I want to ask you then, where do you stand with Christ? Look ahead to 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John explains himself here in a very succinct way. I am writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Beloved, you will sin. This side of heaven, we are not perfect, and though as believers, we are being sanctified, we still do sin. What a joy, and what a privilege to know that Christ is advocating for us on our behalf with the Father. That even though we still sin, we are forgiven in Christ. That doesn't mean you get to go out and do what you want, and all is well because you're forgiven. On the contrary, one of the marks of true saving faith is a hatred of sin and our inherent sin nature. It is a reviling against the flesh that takes no joy in sins committed, and that runs to Christ to confess sin and receive forgiveness. Living life like you're covered and you can do what you want because Jesus has your back is evidence of false conversion. Nowhere in scripture does God say that this is acceptable. Not only that, it is an offense to God and blasphemy against his holy name. There have been people all through history who have committed sin and atrocities in the name of Christ. It would be better for you, if you live a life like that, to not tell people you're a Christian. Don't You're doing nothing more than defaming the name of Jesus Christ. Don't associate yourself with something you're not. It's people like that and reasons like that for which the world belittles and makes fun of Christians. Scores of televangelists, faith healers... So-called prophets, charlatans, hucksters, and frauds have scorned the name of Christ and the Christian faith because they claim to be Christians and do all their supposed work for the cause of Christ. All it takes is a cursory search of Google and YouTube, and you will find thousands of examples of these people bringing reproach to the name of Christ. I have seen a particular megachurch in California whose so-called prophets and apostles rebuked COVID-19 when it first happened, claimed victory over it and said we would be released from it in Jesus' name. At least, at least two things are wrong with that, if not more. One, how come these apparent prophets and apostles never saw COVID coming in the first place? And two, it's nearly a year later and it's still a part of everyday life. They're not healing people from it. They've utterly failed to do anything about it. They've been exposed as false. They have defamed the name of Christ, and unless they repent of of their sins and come to true saving faith in Christ, they will pay for it. Lastly, what does propitiation mean? In a single word, it means satisfaction, to satisfy. It's used a few times throughout the New Testament. What What propitiation means in the context of Christ is that Christ's death brought satisfaction for the sins of every person who would ever believe in him. We know Christ's death satisfied God's wrath. Because his wrath came to an end, after which Jesus was fully restored in glory, according to Hebrews 1.3. As believers, our sins have been paid for by the shed blood of Christ and his finished work on the cross. Can I say this, though, to those of you who need to hear it? If you are outside of Christ, your sins are still held against you, and you are not saved. You are not saved from the penalty of sin. You are not saved from an eternity apart from him. This life is not about you. What happens in this life is not about making you happy or grabbing all that you can get. When you die, you take nothing with you. To paraphrase an old saying, there are no moving trucks in a funeral possession. When you die, that's it. There are no more chances. You will stand before God in judgment. You will recognize that he is God, that all philosophies, religions, opinions, and wisdom of this world were false, and that the Bible is true. You will bow before him And you will submit to the judgment he renders. You have no choice. Tomorrow may be too late, friend. Do not put off to fulfill some inane desires you have. Do not wait to surrender your life to Christ. See his beauty. See his majesty. See that in him we have life and it is complete we read it this morning. Confess your sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He will cleanse all your sins, but you must confess and repent. Come speak to me. Come speak to Rob. Speak to one of the elders. Respond to the call that Christ is making on your life today. Whatever you do, please do not delay. I'll close with this. The church is missing some key ingredients. Above all, what is needed in the body of Christ today is a call to action to go back to true saving faith. We need faithful men to preach the word and shepherd the flock. We need to teach the body of Christ sound doctrine that is based in the word of God. We need to love one another because Christ first loved us. We must rejoice, church family, that Christ died to save us from our sins. He is the source of our joy. When you, as a Christian... Grasp the reality of Christ's death on the cross. That he died to save us from an eternity separated from him. That he called you and brought you to himself. That he converted you, adopted you, justified you, is now sanctifying you so that one day you will stand before him in glory, free from sin, in a new glorified resurrection body, and hear those wonderful words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. What a glorious, triumphant day that will be. To be with Christ in heaven no pain no suffering no tears no sin I don't know about you but I'm very tired of sin I am weary of its effects but we press on Philippians 3:14 press I press onward sorry I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ in Christ Jesus Where do you stand with Christ one day those who are in Christ will receive our crown of glory and we will be with Christ when he returns and reigns. Let me leave this last quote from Spurgeon up on the screen. There are no crown wearers in heaven who were not cross bearers here below. I think he summed that up nicely. We await our time in heaven when we will be with Christ for eternity. I cannot wait to be with the Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time today, for your word and for its power in our lives. We thank you for the truth. We thank you that you raised up countless men and women throughout history who made a stand for truth, a stand for Christ. Thank you for the precious gift of salvation. May those who are in earshot of these words right now who don't know you, may they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You have called us to be salt and light. May we never rest while there are souls to be won for Christ. May we never let our guard down. May we persevere in truth, living out the commands you give us in Scripture, proclaiming the gospel from right here in our home of Caboolture to the ends of the earth. Lord Jesus, you loved us, you saved us, and you are worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. This we give to you with all that we are. We look forward to our great hope where one day we will see you face to face. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.